So I know it's Easter and we should be looking at the, the death and resurrection of Jesus and we're going to get to that. And so you might be asking, why are we talking about the, the death of Stephen? Um, and uh, hopefully some of this will make sense by the end. And um, I do know it's been a bit longer, so I'll try to keep this as short as possible. Um, but Stephen's an interesting guy. He's the first deacon in the church. He gets uh, chosen to, to be a deacon, one of, of seven that get chosen essentially to help with some of the administration of the church. Um, the church is facing a bit of an administrative struggle. Um, two sets of widows are having a problem, and um, um, you know there's, there's not like fairness going on, not proper sharing. Um, and so Peter gets up and says, well, the way we're going to solve this is we're going to essentially choose deacons, and they choose seven people that will help um, to godly administrate kind of the affairs of the church. Um, and Stephen is one of them. We actually don't know much about Stephen. Um, we, we just know that he gets chosen. He obviously was some kind of standout person within the church, someone that the church people respected, that they, they would have selected him to be one of, of the people that would handle some of the administrative affairs. That's all is what we know. Um, and then he gets, he's obviously preaching, we, we learn that much, he's preaching, he's speaking about Jesus to people, he gets called before the Sanhedrin, uh, he gives this long sermon, one of the longest uh, recorded sermons in the book of Acts, and um, um, we didn't read that whole passage, cursed, uh, skipped it out, otherwise should still be reading now, it's a long passage of uh, Stephen's sermon. But then what happens is Stephen becomes the church's first martyr. Um, he's the first person, uh, follower of Jesus, who dies for their faith. Um, Stephen becomes the first martyr. And essentially, the question that I want to try and answer um, this Easter is why would Stephen die for his faith? And not only him, but why have millions of others over the last 2,000 years willingly laid down their own lives to die for their faith? Why did Stephen do it? And why have millions, millions of others? They say in the 20th century alone, 45 million Christians were martyred. Millions of Christians have died for their faith. Why would they do that? That's the question we want to ask. And to understand that, we're going to look at this person's life, Stephen. Uh, Stephen is an interesting guy. Like I said, we don't know much, but we know that he's the first martyr, and we know that he died by stoning. A little while uh, ago, myself, and a, a couple others, Pascal, who is here somewhere outside with his kids probably. Um, myself and Pascal went to Malaysia for a church conference. And uh, part of the conference there was a dress-up evening. And uh, so myself, Pascal, and another South African called Rudy decided we were going to crush this 
in Malaysia. We were going to win. So we got these wise men outfits like you cannot believe. We were the wise men. Like we were unbelievable. Like seriously, we had got these outfits. Malaysia, great place to buy wise men outfits. Um, so we got these outfits. We dressed up to the till. We were like, we're going to win. And we lost, we came second. And we came second to Stephen, the guy who dressed up as Stephen. And we're like, how do you dress up as Stephen? Like, seriously. But the guy who dressed up as Stephen was just in like a Jewish kind of robe. And he had, tired, he had stuck with double-sided tape, like a stone to his head. <laughs> and we're like, okay, I mean, it's a bit creative, you know, like, but anyway, like, that's how Stephen is known. It's pretty much, Stephen is known for this, that he died by stoning, and that is significant. But the, th- the thing is, is that throughout history, Christians have died. Stephen may have been the first, but every single one of the apostles except one, church history tells us, were martyred, died for their faith. During about AD 64, there's a historic event where the city of Rome goes on fire. And many historians believe that Nero himself set the the city on fire because he wanted to rebuild it. He was, you know, each Caesar wanted to make their name great. And the way he was going to make his name great was to destroy what the previous Caesar had done. And then when he would rebuild it, he would build it after his own glory. So many historians believe that he set the city on fire, but he couldn't take the blame for it. You know, that would be wrong for Caesar to set the city on fire. So what did he do? He blamed the plague that was spreading across the Roman Empire. He blamed the Christians who were uh, multiplying and uh, uh, were causing a stain, as uh, he said, on the Roman Empire. And so what Nero did is, um, you can see this one picture by a Polish artist who who, um, pictures this, is Nero starts rounding up the Christians and uh, he puts them, and sorry for the graphic details of church history, but he puts them on a pole wrapped in animal skins and he sets the Christians alight and he says, if you call yourselves the light of the world, you're going to start lighting up Rome. And three and a half thousand Christians that day die under the wrath of a prideful, ambitious Caesar. You get a little bit further on, before, just before Constantine has this encounter with Jesus, um, which is the middle of the fourth century, they estimate that there were seven million Christians at that time, by the time that Constantine makes Christianity the the kind of legalized religion of, of Rome. But at that point, by the time there's 7 million Christians in 300 years, the historians estimate that already 2 million Christians were martyred. That's about one quarter of all known Christians at that point had given their lives for their faith. That is a lot. 
That is a brutal onslaught against this growing faith. Who would want to be a Christian when you've watched Stephen be dragged out the city? Can you even imagine what that must have been like, being dragged out the city and being stoned? Being stoned is so brutal because you, know, you kind of hope that the stone that's going to kill you will come early, but if it doesn't, your body just shatters until you die. Why would anyone want to be a Christian when you witness Stephen, when you witness the apostles? Peter and and Paul were two of the apostles killed under Nero's wrath. When you think of two million Christians already have given their lives for their faith, by the time Constantine comes on the scene. Why would anyone want to be a Christian in the 20th century when 45 million people were martyred for their faith? You know, what's interesting is four names that will come up now. Um, A guy called... Theodas, Judas the Galilean, Rabbi Akiva Bar Kokba. I mean, what is that guy's name? Sorry. Simon Magnus. Do you, has anyone heard of those four people? No one. You know what's interesting about those four people? All of them were messianic figures. All of them were people that started a messianic movement. Maybe you've heard of someone who himself thought he was a messianic figure, David Koresh from the last century. They made a movie about him, a messianic figure in America who started a a movement. You know what's, what's significant about all four of these names? Is historians know them as like a side note. But here today, 2,000 years on, no one knows of them. Their followers are all gone. They all died, and they all left behind a dead movement. In fact, during the time of Jesus, the the leaders knew about Messianic movements because there had been about four or five of them before Jesus, um, and they knew about Messianic movements, and the Roman Empire always knew that, like Judea, that Israel was a troublesome nation. Because there would always be someone that would gather the people and they were the people of God so that they, you know, they gathered the people, they're like, we cannot have Rome, uh, you know, lording over us. So they always had these movements popping up. But you know what Rome did? It was really easy to to take out a, a movement in Israel. All is what they had to do was take out its leader. If you took out its leader, that would be it. The movement would die within a couple of years. In fact, this was so known that Caiaphas, the high priest, when when Jesus is there and Israel is starting to stir up, Caiaphas says this, who was the high priest that year, he says to, to the other Jewish leaders, he says, you know nothing at all 
Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. What he's saying is this. He's not, he's not I mean, he's, he's inadvertently prophesying that Jesus is going to die for the nation. But what he's really saying is he's saying this, guys, this has happened before. You know, we don't want Rome to march in here and destroy Jerusalem again. Like, we don't want that. We don't want the city to be smashed down. So the best way is to do it how it's always been done. Take out the leader. Take out Jesus. If we take out Jesus, the movement will end. If we take out Jesus, that, that will be it. You know, his followers will disperse. You know, that will be the end of the story. Well, 2,000 years on... It's not the end of the story. They took out Jesus and no one anticipated what would happen. They took out Jesus and no one would anticipate that this movement would spread across the world. Why Christianity? Why has it lasted? Why did it spread? Why is Christianity the only religion where its growth has always been foster outside of its hometown? Why has Christianity been able to grow in different cultures, different spaces? People looking different acting different, why? It comes down to one word, resurrection. It's the resurrection. Historian Kirk Durston says this, he says, early sources, both Christian and non-Christian record that the primary reason for the spread of early Christianity was the belief that Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead in an immortal, indestructible body. A guy called Tom Wright writes an 880-page tome on the resurrection. It's pretty intense. It's pretty intense reading. Some of it's very academic. Um, but it is a massive book on the resurrection. And one of the things that he concludes uh, as he comes to the end of his exploration of the resurrection is he is like, whether we believe it or not, the one thing you cannot doubt as you study history is that the disciples genuinely, genuinely believe that Jesus rose again. And that the spread of Christianity like a fire across the world was spread because people genuinely believed that Jesus was risen. The resurrection changed everything. And here in this story of Stephen, what do we see? We see Stephen preaching we see Stephen being judged for the message of Christ. But what we see is as the judgment is coming, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looks up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at 
the right hand of God. What gives Stephen the courage, the boldness? What gives Stephen the courage to face such a brutal death? He sees a resurrected Christ. His eyes are open. Whether he was the only person who saw this or not, we don't know. But what we know is that Stephen in that moment has his eyes open. And as his eyes are open, he sees the living Christ, the resurrected Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. And the vision of Christ, like it was for Paul, like it was for Peter, like it was for the thousands and thousands of other people that gave their lives, the millions and millions of people, the, re- the vision of the resurrected Christ that Jesus is alive is what stirred the church. It's what fuels the church today. Paul says that the resurrected Christ is so important to the faith. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this. He says, if Christ did not rise, we are of all men the most to be pitied. We are the most to be pitied. If Jesus did not rise, then we gathering here on Sunday, on Easter Sunday, is a pitiful affair. But Christ did rise. And the fuel of the church grew as people held to and believed in the risen Jesus. Of course, the death is significant. We know that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. We know that our, as we sang this morning, that Jesus' life was given for yours and mine. But it is in the resurrection that we know that Jesus' sacrifice was true. It is in the resurrection that we know that Christ can truly conquer death. That sin has been dealt with. From this passage, I just want to close with four simple things that we learn about Stephen and the resurrected Christ that I think can help us today. And hopefully remind ourselves that the church has always moved forward on its belief that Jesus is resurrected. Point number one, Jesus is alive. This has been the hope of the church for 2,000 years that Jesus is alive. They do not serve a dead God. We do not serve a, a God who, a, a guru, a, someone who was just wise, who left us a whole bunch of wise teaching. We serve a living Christ. We serve the Christ who has conquered death. When uh, this is what Stephen sees, he sees Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. He sees a risen, resurrected, living Christ. It has always been the hope of the church that Christ lives 
is, is alive today and that we commune with the living Christ. That Christ lives, he intercedes on our behalf, that he has conquered death, that his uh, conquering death is our hope, uh, that Jesus is alive. That today, as we worship, tomorrow, as we have a holiday, Tuesday, we go to work, Wednesday, kids go to school, as life goes on and on, we walk knowing that Christ is alive and he intercedes on our behalf and that by his spirit, he is at work in us. For Stephen, he would have seen Christ alive. This enables him to go through being the first Christian martyr. Second point is what Stephen sees is that there's life after life. There's life after life. As death stares you in the face and death is tragic and painful and for many people is the number one fear is death stares you in the face or death stares Stephen in the face. What is his hope that his savior, his king, his Lord, the one that he emulates his life after is the one who has gone through death and lives. It is the fact that Christ is alive that gives him life. And hope that his life, that the end of life will not be the end of life. In fact, you, you may have noticed um, when Kirsty read that at the end of the passage, it says, when he had said this, Lord, do not hold their sins against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. You know that the Luke, who's a doctor, I mean, Luke's a doctor, he's writing this, he knows when someone's dead, um, he uses very strategic words when he talks about believers dying in Acts. You'll notice if you read through Acts, he never talks about a believer dying. He talks about a believer falling asleep, which is such a nice way of putting it. But there's a reason why that he says that. And he says that because he believed that believers, that Jesus has conquered death and that the hope of Christians is that us dying is not the end. It is just but a breath, but a, a sleep. Because the ultimate hope of the church is that as Christ was resurrected, so we too will be resurrected, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. As Christ was raised from the dead, so his believers will rise again. As Christ went through the grave and conquered death, so we too. Stephen sees the resurrected Christ and you can imagine that the vision of the resurrected Christ being the first martyr of the church stirs his own hope for his own resurrection. That there is life after life. What else? The third thing that we see is that Jesus is for his people. Jesus is for his people. Stephen gets this vision of Christ, the resurrected Christ, 
In the only passage in the scriptures, we see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Every other time, the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is the only time in the scriptures that the Son of Man is seen standing at the right hand of God. And theologians believe it's almost in the anticipation of Stephen's death that the Son stands up next to the Father, almost like peering through the curtains to watch his own Son. The first believer laid down his life for him. Theologians believe the reason why it's the only time the son is seen standing next to the father is it shows that the concern of Christ for his own as his own follows in the footsteps of Christ and lays down their life. Jesus almost stands up That's like the picture we are given, that Jesus stands up as this moment's about to happen. He stands up as someone who is deeply concerned. He stands up as someone who looks upon, who looks upon what is happening. He stands up in compassion. The gospel teaches us that God is for his people. We often think of God as a hard taskmaster. We think of God as a harsh uh, person who sits on his chair with his cane. Uh, If you remember those things, if you went to school and still gave canes, um, I did. It was quite sore. But... um, You know, like often that's our picture of God, like this grumpy old school teacher that's waiting for you to go out of line. And when you do, why have you done that? It's like God is that spoiler of the fun, you know? Just don't have too much fun because God is watching you. And you're like, oh, chips. But the story of the gospel is a different story. The story of the gospel is the story of God tearing, when when Jesus died on the cross, of the veil being torn open and the way to God being made. The story of the gospel is that when Stephen dies, he has a vision of Jesus standing, looking upon him. The story of the gospel is that sinners get welcomed into Christ because of what he's done. It's the story of God showing favor and grace because he showed judgment to Christ on the cross. My final point is this. So what seeing the resurrected Christ does is it gives us a different way to live. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against him. I don't know about you, but if I was being stoned, those probably aren't the words that I'm thinking or saying. But Jesus, when he's dying on the cross, says the same words. 
And Stephen, a follower of Christ, would have seen his savior echo the same words and be standing in glory. He would have seen that the ways of this world are not the ways of God. It is the resurrected Christ that stirs him to live differently. In Colossians, it talks about, uh, Colossians 3 starts talking about, don't set your mind on things below, but set your mind on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, then Christ who is our life. The hope of the Christian church was the resurrected Christ. And what stirred them to live differently was the resurrected Christ. They lived differently because their minds, their lives were believing in a kingdom that is eternal. A kingdom that lives by a different way. Michael Eaton um, is a British theologian that uh, spent time in Zambia, spent time in South Africa and Kenya. Um, I remember hearing him teach once on 1 Corinthians 15 and uh, he was teaching on 1 Corinthians 15 and he says this, he says, often, you know, it's said that those who are heavenly minded are of no earthly good. He was like, but what history tells us is that those who are heavenly minded are those who do the most good. Those whose minds are set on Christ are those who begin to change the world. Those who can see Christ and his victory and that our kingdom is not a kingdom of this world, but, a king, but the kingdom of God that will rule and reign for all of eternity are those that can walk onto the streets as happened in AD 200 while people were dying of the plague, while people were dying and everyone was deserting the, the cities, why could the Christians walk out and care for those who were dying? They could do it because their kingdom was not of this world and their victory was not in this life and death was only but asleep because their resurrection was certain because of the resurrection of Christ. Why have Christians over history, many bad things have been done in the name of Christ. There's no doubting that. But Christians throughout history have built hospitals, education, have done so much to change the world because the fuel of Christ's love and his ultimate victory has become like the fire in the church. We are here today, 2,000 years on, because Stephen saw a resurrected Christ. And it says that they took Stephen's clothes and they cast it at the feet of Saul. And Saul gave his approval to them, stoning Stephen. And then Saul, like a man on fire himself, began to round up all the Christians in the area. And he began to 
persecute them, put them to death. And then we read in chapter nine, Saul himself gets knocked off his own high horse. And the heavens are open and he sees the resurrected Christ. And Saul becomes Paul, who wrote more of the New Testament than any other author. What changed things for Saul? He saw the resurrected Christ. Why could Stephen die? Why could Paul, who persecuted the church, lay down his life for the gospel? Why could Peter and none of the other apostles do the same? Why could three and a half thousand people give up their lives and be lit on the streets of Nero? Why could over two million Christians by the time of Constantine give up their lives? Why could 45 million Christians last century give up their lives? Because of the risen Christ. As people, the church, for 2,000 years to believe and hold to that Christ is not dead. He is alive, resurrected at the right hand of the Father, the fuel of the church. Can I pray? Jesus, I thank you that you have taken the most lethal tool of the tyrant, death, and you made it null and void. For you, Christ conquered death when you rose again, resurrected. And as Paul says, your death, Jesus, is the first fruits, the hope. Your resurrection is the first fruits and the hope of the church that as you rose, we too will rise with you. And we thank you, Jesus, that you laid down your life. You gave yourself as a substitutionary sacrifice. You were the lamb who was slain, who took away the sins of the world. And you also are the God, the Son of God, the King of Kings, who defeated death, who rose again, who lives for all eternity, and who calls us to yourself. I pray, Lord, for all of us, as our faith may falter and and waver, as we go through difficult times and hard times, as sometimes we feel like Life just seems too much. Oh Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes that we may see you, the resurrected Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.